This is a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare, Zimbabwe. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org. So I'm going to try and um, preach without notes today. So uh, if I have my PowerPoint up on the, on the screen, perhaps, one day, maybe. Because without it, I'm going to have to put my glasses on. Um, part of the reason why I want to not have notes is because uh, my glasses are great for reading, but when I look at you, I see, I see a lot more of you than there really are. And uh, some of you look really awful. <laughs> it's just a blur. And you know, some of you, you think, you, you think you've got a 38-inch waist, and it's, in my glasses, it looks like a 58-inch waist. It's, it's not, uh, not very pleasant. It's not always a nice uh, deal for, for all of you. All right. So, this week we're talking about what Jesus said about sex, and, uh, oh, and, uh, and masturbation, and we decided um, that some of you weren't old enough to hear that message, so we left it out, and then there was a debate of whether we should talk about sex in church or not. But we figured that, um, that Jesus talked about sex, and if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us to talk about, uh, and so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it in some way. Um, I'd like to start, did I just black it out? I'd like to start with a disclaimer. Um, you know, often when a, somebody gets up to preach, you think, here's somebody who knows it all. He's going to come down on us. He's going to tell us how to do it. You know, and there's almost like we're special because we're preaching and, and you guys are all slaves and, and just low life. That is never, ever the case. And if we've ever come across that way, we want to apologize. But what I do want to say is that none of us got this right. Or if you are out there, uh, well done. Because not many of us got this 100% right, even in our thinking from day one. And, and, uh, and so it, it's, you know, I never got it right. I, I, I messed around. I, I made mistakes. But... Yesterday's BIOI, if, you, if you're doing BIOI with us, uh, this quote was put there, and I thought, this is really apt. We all have a past. No matter how bad your past is, you can get past your past. God can give you a new beginning. He can use you greatly and give you a future. And that's Joyce Meyer. But uh, another great saying that I heard years ago that I've just thought of was that, you know, sometimes we have to deal with our stuff. Because if we don't, our stuff will deal with us. You know, that thing, things, we, mistakes we made in our past have a habit of coming around and biting us. It's like there's a sting in its tail. And all you've got to do is look at politics to see how that happens. Donald Trump made boatloads of mistakes as a younger man. And when I say a younger man, I'm saying last year. Okay? Uh, the year before. And he has publicly apologized. He has publicly repented. But people keep going on and on and on about it. Now, God forgives and is inclined to forget. Perhaps, I don't think he does forget, but he doesn't bring up the past again. He doesn't remember the past, but the world does. The world does not forget the mistakes we make. And the world has a habit of rubbing it in. A couple of years ago, I think two or three years ago, there was a, an interesting story I read on the BBC News about a young girl. She was... Uh, I think 18, uh, who'd been elected to 
some kind of junior office. Now, they do it here, but it's not publicized. But you get this thing called the Model United Nations, and you get Junior City Council and all that kind of stuff. Well, this, this girl was elected to Junior Police Force uh, Superintendent. It's quite a good position. She doesn't necessarily want to be a, a police person when she grew up. But uh, she was appointed to office. There was a big song and dance about it. It was great. And then somebody dug out a Twitter comment that she'd made when she was 13 that had a racist element in it. And she had to resign. She was literally in office two weeks, and she had to resign about a, mis- uh, a comment that she made when she was 13. Well, for me, I'd say, 13, what do you know at 13? You're stupid. You're influenced. Your friends say, you know, boo, and you go, ah, yeah, yeah. You know, you go along with the flow, not necessarily understanding what you're saying, not necessarily meaning what you're saying, uh, but saying it and then having to live to regret it later. And the same thing happens with us as teenagers. Teenagers mess around. They think this is innocent. It's not going to go anywhere. You know, boys think that girls think like boys think. Uh, and later we find out that girls don't think like boys at all, especially when you get married. It's, a, it's quite an eye-opener to realize that they don't think like us at all. They have their own way of thinking. And you, all you've got to do is watch Life Your Way to a Better Marriage, uh, the tale of two brains, to figure out that, you know, women, mm, this in here is a nest of wires, and everything's connected to everything. But for guys, it's, everything, it's all logical. It's all in little boxes. We take it out and we deal with it. And for guys, there's this little box called sex. And we think, wow, this is how I think about sex. Surely she's got to be thinking the same thing as me. Surely you are wrong. I can assure you. The girls do not think the same way that guys do. So uh, it's important to understand that Jesus set out some boundaries and some parameters uh, what he did was he reinforced a bunch of stuff that had happened in the Old Testament, but he, didn't, he never really went into the same detail. So what did Jesus say about sex before marriage? And this is where it really affects all of us, because most of us fall into that camp of saying, how far can I go when I'm just dating or just courting? I mean, what are the right things and what are the wrong things to do? What can I get away with even? And what did Jesus say? Well, he said nothing. He absolutely nothing about sex before marriage. And we, you know, when we look at this in detail and, and we're trying to counsel young people or, or people who are, uh, you know, talking about getting engaged, talking about getting married, uh, suddenly we find ourselves out in a limb and we say, you guys shouldn't be, you know, touching or doing any kind of stuff because it's wrong. Oh, how's it wrong? Uh, yeah, Jesus didn't say anything. And so, we need to have a look at a bit more detail about what Jesus really meant. So just having a look, he said nothing, but there are three points that we should talk about. One, we're human. Two, there's a cultural aspect that is really important. And three, is it really a big deal after all? So under the we're all human, um, we all, he, well, I don't know about you all, but I certainly used to hear this the saying about somebody sowing their wild oats. And I have a friend, he's my age, uh, he's not a Christian, uh, he can't find a reason for there to be God at all in life. Um, and, and he talks about girls he slept with when he was at school, especially uh, he recalls lower sixth being sex and rugby. I think that was, that was the terminology he used. He didn't do a lot of school except to play rugby but he, and to meet girls. 
But he, you know, I said to him, well, you know, I, I, I never slept with anybody until I got married. And he goes, what? How did you sow your wild oats? I thought, wow. He, he talks about that as if it's what everybody does. And uh, I think he's even brought up his two teenage boys to think, guy, find some girl that's got some kind of protection and just get your, get your fill. Get, get it over and done with. And then find the right girl and marry her. And yet one of the funny things is that, that, uh, that we tell our kids, especially daughters, remain pure until you're married. Find the right guy, marry him, and give yourself to him. So it's like there's this trade-off and that happens, uh, there's very few girls that get told by their mothers, go and sleep with a lot of guys until you find one that, that you like. You don't find that. You find the this, this striving to keep our daughters pure and, and virgins, but our sons, we sit and say, boo, go out and enjoy, son, have a nice day, and uh, tell us how it goes. Well, that's not the case. I, I made a point when I was a child or teenager saying, I want to marry a virgin. To me, sleeping with a girl who slept around was the most disgusting thing that I could think of. Now, I know not a lot of guys, not all guys think like that, but that's how I thought. And because I wanted to marry a virgin, it was 100% important to me that I remained a virgin. And it was hard work, but I succeeded. But the reason we have to... Uh, Get over this world's view of thinking of sowing our wild oats and, and just you know experimenting and trying a few things out to see what we like is because Timothy in Timothy Paul says, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, sure, we can take youthful lusts in driving fast and getting drunk, and we can we can put that a whole bunch of things into that category, but our heart is never truly impure until we involve some kind of sexual activity. We can get drunk and, we, and what we suffer is a hangover. We might have, uh, we might have um, you know, broken our own kind of standard, but you never feel the same way until you've broken the standard you've set for yourself sexually. And that is where the issue really becomes major. And so that is why we say, we as the church say, kids, teenagers, don't experiment. Don't. Because all you're going to do is make your heart impure and damage what God has said to be something really beautiful in the future and truly wonderful. So one of the things the church has done, and I'm not convinced that it is right, is to tell people to get married young. Now, years back, when I was at Ramah, back in the dark ages, before some of you were born, I was sitting in a meeting of cell group leaders, and uh, I was the youngest, and I sat right next to the pastor, and on the other side of him was his secretary, who is about, she's still around, must be five or six years older than me, she was single. Everybody else in the room was married, and he made some comment about single people getting married. I think I was 22. And he looked at me, and he looked at her, and he said, you guys would make a great couple. And I looked at her, and I looked at myself, and I thought about it. I looked at her again, and we looked at each other, and I just said, 
Never in a million years. Because she just wasn't nice to look at. And actually, at the time, I didn't even think her a nice person. So I said, yeah, look, this is all wrong. But in that same year, <laughs> listen, she's married to somebody else. And she's as tall as she is wide now. Um, and I just, <laughs> I'm not mentioning any names. I'm not telling you who she is. And I'm not going to. Some man's, one man's meat, another man's poison, as they say. And I just thought, you know, that's not right. And, but I, I realized that a lot of young people are heavily influenced by older people they respect in authority. And some other lesser man would have said, okay, if you say so. She doesn't look great, but I'll marry her because you said so. That same year, I attended nine weddings. In every single one of those nine weddings, the bride was under 20 years of age. Out of those nine weddings, one of them is still married. Every single one of them ended in divorce. One, uh, when I say one is still married, they got married, they got divorced, and 20 years later got remarried. So I'm not calling that one of those. And part of it was pressure. They knew they had these wild oats they had to sow, so they thought, let's do this the right way and get married. They didn't know each other. They didn't know what life was about. They didn't understand anything. They were just teenagers with a narrow view of the world. However, in old Jewish culture, girls were brought up from an early age to understand that when you're old enough, you get married and daddy will find you the right guy. And many of those girls were married off as soon as they hit puberty or shortly after puberty. So any time from 13 was fair game. They may not have even met the guy that they were going to marry. Some, they were just kind of said, tomorrow you're getting married. You'll meet the guy there. Never seen him, didn't know anything about him. They would ask some questions. What's his name? Oh, yeah, yeah his name is Pete. You know. uh, what does he do? Oh, yeah, well, he, you know, he's a blacksmith. And that was kind of all you really knew about him. Didn't know what he looked like. They didn't have photographs in those days. They didn't have Facebook and, 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 and Instagram and you know, Snapchat. None of that stuff happened. Um, he may have been from a different village. But on the wedding day, you were presented with, uh, with this guy, to this guy, and that was it. It was arranged, and everybody knew it was arranged, and you made it work because... You made it work. You had no choice. Divorce was a shameful thing. And in fact, uh, under the law, it was very difficult to get divorced. They watered it down over the years. But really, the only way you could get divorced was if you could prove that you'd slept with somebody else. And if that was the case, you were taken outside and you were stoned to death. So it wasn't a very uh, nice prospect for those who wanted to try things out. They knew they had to remain pure because they would be found out on their wedding day and then they could be stoned if they were proved not to be virgins, especially if you were a girl. In our changing culture, things have moved on. We've realized that kids really aren't that mature. Oh, by the way, the guy could be slightly older, would generally be slightly older. He would probably have developed a trade. He had a way of supporting his wife and family. So he might have been 18 Still really young to get married. Now in our change in culture, we realize that we have to uh, get kids trained up. We have to give them opportunities. 
And a, you know, a few years ago, to get a job in government, you needed three O-levels. Then it became five O-levels. And now it's a degree. Might even be a master's. So we've realized that there's more competition. We have to equip our kids better. And getting them married young doesn't help them get educated and get established. So we prolong this, uh, this waiting game of them getting married. And uh, in fact, in, in many cultures, it's over 30 before people think about getting married. Margie and I were almost 30. Well, I was almost 30. Margie just turned 30 when we got married. Yes, she's a little bit older than me. Just a few months. That's fine. Okay. When you look, when you look at us, I'm the one who looks older. What does that say? I've looked after her really well. And just trying to figure out her logic has given me a lot of gray hairs. Okay, not the case. Some of us just age badly. Some of us just age really well. Okay, but you know, and that's the trend. In, in Europe, many people do not get married until their late 20s or 30s, unless they're in the church, in which case it might be early 20s, and let's have babies straight away. So what is the right way to look at it? Let's talk about that um, that Old Testament way of getting girls married off young. And one of the things, I talked about them being stoned, but this is what Deuteronomy says. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders at the city gate. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man as wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful, shameful conduct, saying, I have found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. So the culture was... And, and in a way, I'm quite glad we don't do this now. You'd be presented as a girl to your husband on your wedding day, or if you were a guy, there was this girl brought, she had a veil over her face, so you didn't even get to know what she looked like. Anything goes. Could be in for a surprise. And, and there, was a, there was a story about, about that where, where uh, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob really fancied this girl, negotiated with her dad, worked for seven years on the wedding night, discovers that he is now married to her older and not quite so good-looking sister. So then he says, hey, dude, you did me a bad deal. He says, culture says you got to marry the older one first. So she didn't find a husband. So guess what? You can have the other one, but guess what? Another seven years hard labor. He never got to see her until after the wedding night. So what they would do at the wedding is they'd do the little ceremony and then... There was a little tent out the back and they were ushered into the tent where there was a bed and they would there, at the time, during the wedding feast, consummate their marriage. Now, if you, uh, <clears throat> you're a girl, um, you'll know that the first time you have sex, there's a good chance that some bleeding might take place. And this is normal. This is how they know that she's a virgin. And what they would then do is she would then come out again, rejoin the wedding feast, and they would do the dancing and the feasting. And mom and dad of the bride would run in and grab that sheet with the bloodstains on it, fold it up, put it away in a suitcase for events like this. 
Because that was the only way they could prove she was a virgin. If that did not occur, then she'd either been playing the harlot or she'd been sexually abused by a close family member or somebody like that. And in Jewish culture, virginity was highly prized. So the chances of a father abusing his daughter was really, really, really slim. And of another family member, even less. We did see it happen in, in David's house, where one of his sons uh, took and slept with one of the daughters of one of his other wives. But that was a rare example. It does happen. It happened in the Bible. But it was a rare thing. So it was really important. Because if she was not a virgin, if there were no tokens of her virginity, they would take her out and stone her. If the tokens were present, and this case was brought before the elders of the city, the man would have to marry her and have to treat her well, whether he liked her or not. Even if she was ugly. Even if she had bad breath. But you know what they say? Halitosis is better than no breath at all. So, so what did Jesus say about sex outside of marriage? Halitosis, medical term for bad breath. Everyone, okay. What's wrong, Brian? You've got bad breath. <laughs> I kept getting courses of antibiotics because, darling, your breath's not quite right. Here, go on these tablets. <laughs> it's only happened about 15 times in our married life. <laughs> Three times, I think. Yeah. But genuinely, I'm prone to sinus infection, which doesn't help. But anyway, there you go. But she's still married to me. She hasn't booted me out. She has been known to sleep in the other room, but that's usually because I snore. <laughs> what did Jesus say about sex outside of marriage? And what he's done is he's called this adultery. Matthew 19. Haven't you read that in the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together let no one separate. So we've heard this at weddings. We've used it at weddings. We use it in other contexts. But the, the truth is that Jesus talked about this because he was trying to establish a precedent for marriage. And one of the key things we can pick up from that is a man shall leave mom and dad. Might be difficult, but he'll leave mom and dad and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He didn't say the two or three or four. He talked about the two being one flesh. So straight away, Jesus is saying, there's no place in my plan for polygamy, for a small house, for a girlfriend, for a bit on the side. The two, husband and wife, shall become one flesh. Really powerful scripture if you look at it in that context. So why did Jesus bring this up? Because God said it in Genesis 2, right in the beginning. And I often say, if you want to understand the origins of something, let's look at the beginning. If you want to understand the importance of something, let's look at the beginning. Adam immediately recognized when he woke up from his sleep, in which, case, in which uh, this surgical procedure took place, where a bit of him was extracted. They say it was the rib, whether that was literal or figurative or a metaphor, is irrelevant but immediately recognized that she was part of him. She said, he said, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. She recognized the, he recognized the importance of her as being 
part of him. In the context of together we form the image and likeness of God. Because when God made Adam, he made Adam in his image and his likeness. And out of Adam, he took the woman. So the two together are one flesh. And then God seals this and says, the two shall become one flesh. Really important to understand this. So let's look at that bit in the beginning. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Called Adam. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So he makes this guy, he takes the chick out of her, out of him. They've got these two, male and female, says they're one flesh. And the very first commandment, he says to them, go and make babies. Make lots of babies. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill it and subdue it. He didn't say, get married and wait 20 years for you to have kids. You know, don't put on the back burner. I have a cousin in Johannesburg, and, and Margie also has a cousin, strange enough. Both of them decided, we want to get married, but we don't have kids. We don't want to have kids. My, uh, Margie's cousin, her reason was, there was a, you know, the, earth, the world's an evil place. I don't want to bring kids into this evil place. My cousin said, I don't have kids because my career is more important. And in, and in both cases... Both of those marriages ended in divorce. There is something special about having kids. It's fulfilling the commandment. But we've got to do this thing right. But the interesting thing is that very last line. God saw what he had done, what he had made, and he said, it was very good. He's also talking about that in the context of sex inside marriage. He is saying, it is very good. Okay, maybe the first couple of times you're still trying to figure things out and how it all works and that. But it gets better and better as you get older. So if you're a newlywed, it gets better and better as you get older. I can speak from experience because I'm older. And I've been married for 24 years this year. <laughs> I didn't have to do the maths. I know it's 24 years in August. And uh, yes, I do know the date. It's the 7th. Guys, 7th of August, yeah, 1993. It was the day I said goodbye to my single life. I miss it. <laughs> Not. Okay. So God saw that was very good. So what's happened over the years is a bunch of uh, teachings and thinking about sex has come out inside and outside of the church. But let's look about uh, what, what's come out of a, a religious fundamentalist idea first. Some people teach that it's dirty. It's disgusting and should only be used for making babies. I once watched this movie. Okay, I know it's a movie, um, but it did convey a kind of puritanistic, fundamentalist thinking where this guy who was a preacher got married to this woman and, and, and on their wedding night, she was quite keen to get on with things. And uh, I think it was culture to turn the lights off and he wouldn't have any of it. And he humiliated her by making her turn the lights on and take off all her clothes and say, do you see that body? That naked body is for making babies. And when we're ready to make babies, 
then we'll do what you want to do. There is, we're, right now, we're not ready to make babies. And I thought, wow, that's quite an interesting uh, outlook on life. Of course, you could go the other route and say, well, uh, we could practice natural family planning and, and, and not use birth control. If you're a good Catholic, you're not supposed to use birth control. Um, and uh, you know what they call people who practice natural family planning, don't you? They're called parents. Yeah. Because you're guaranteed to fall pregnant. But uh, <laughs> Taps knows from experience. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Tim. <laughs> okay, some people also think that, that sex is recreational only. It's a recreational pastime and it's some kind of activity. So some people don't view sex as, as a way of making babies. They just think this is sport. This is fun. Some people think it's purely a biological act. God help those people. Some understand, and this is where you grow into, that there's a deeply spiritual significance involved in sex. It's, it's where, as we come together, we feel complete. And in fact, you'll even hear people talk about their, their lovers as their completion. He completes me, she completes me. Now that may not be entirely true, and I'm not entirely sure that that's what God intended, but there's certainly a spiritual significance because I believe it's the only thing that we as humans do that tra transcends mind, body, and soul. Spirit, soul, and body. Because I believe that it's the one thing that God created for us to experience fullness of worship in the likeness of Him. So we look at it as a married couple as being something that's an act of worship, not just getting our needs met or something that's a bit of fun. Yes, all those things, but there's a deeply spiritual significance involved in it. So why does Jesus talk about adultery? Well, first of all, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. One of the greatest errors in the Bible, one of the Bibles that was produced in the 1600s, I think it was, the guy omitted the word not uh, by accident. Thou shalt commit adultery. One of the biggest blunders ever made in a Bible translation. And culture and tradition says that that entire copy of the Bible, which was handwritten, would be destroyed because it was not entirely accurate. But you'll find that in, uh, I think it was in the Guinness Book of Records, where they talked about that. But adultery is a major sin. Now, some of us will say, charismatic movement will tell you that there's no grades of sin. Uh, you know, sin is sin in God's eyes. But the more I study a bit of theology and, and, and think about this, I do realize that actually there are different grades of sin. Uh, and some of the more, the more learned theologians will kind of go along with that school of thought. The Catholics will teach there's what they call mortal sins, so sins that will lead to death, and venial sins, which are kind of lightweight things, like telling a white lie is a venial sin. Now, I'm not going to go down that route. I'm not, I'm not trying to introduce that as a doctrine. But I would say that if it's mentioned in the Ten Commandments, it must be fairly significant. And um, <clears throat> here are a few thoughts about adultery. You know, we might be sowing our wild oats. We might be just, you know, getting you know, our pressure off or whatever it is, getting our, our, our needs met. But sleeping with somebody that you're not going to marry is effectively sleeping with somebody that's going to marry somebody else. So you're really, what you're doing is sleeping with somebody else's spouse in advance. So that would be 
one good way of looking at what did Jesus say about sex outside of marriage or before marriage? Yeah, if, if it's before marriage and you're sleeping with someone and you're not sure if you're going to marry them, the chances are you're already committing adultery with somebody that was designed to be somebody else's spouse. It could be you. It could be the other party. They might marry somebody else, in which case you have already committed adultery with them in advance. Interesting quote I heard when I was a teenager was a guy named David Wilkerson. He's, I think he's now passed away. Um, but he wrote a book back in the 70s called The Cross and the Switchblade. And the movie is still available. He ran a church in, uh, in New York. It was called Church on Times Square. It's still running. He's no longer pastoring it. But in a, in a, a tape, if you remember cassette tapes, we used to have them when I was younger. Um, he said this, whenever a man, sorry, whenever a woman sleeps with another man, she leaves a piece of her personality with him. It's like she gives away a piece of herself to that man. And as she sleeps with more and more men, the more and more her, her being is given away to those people. And as a result, eventually, if you know anybody who's a serious prostitute, a sex worker, you find that their, their sense of well-being, their sense of worth is completely diminished to the point that sex is meaningless, it's valueless, and they find it difficult to be in love with someone because the guilt so weighs them down. They may have blocked it out, they may have kind of walled it up in some sort of cavity in their life, but essentially they've lost their own personality and character and their own general sense of well-being. I had another thought there, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, yeah. Um, there are some statistics in, uh, that we've seen recently that says that you know, if, if a woman has never slept with a man and she gets married and they sleep together, there is a 78% chance, 80, 85% chance of her marriage staying together. As soon as she sleeps with one other man, that chance drops to 57%. And um, she, for every successive guy she slept with before she got married, the chances of that marriage succeeding would get less and less and less. But the first one is massive. It's almost like you've just given away half your chance of keeping your marriage together. And I've had conversations with people in the past about um, you know, sleeping around, and they attest to that. I slept with somebody else, and now that I'm married, it's not quite the same. Because their, their first experience is the important one. I've got time constraints. But this is why. This is 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written that the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside their body. But sexually... But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that so do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within whom you have sorry, within who, within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. But what he's really saying there, Paul is saying, is that that every time you sleep with a prostitute or another woman or a is that you're becoming one flesh with multiple people. And it's, it's impossible to be five flesh. It's only possible to be one flesh. So this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Have you heard what it said? You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And this is the scripture that comes against things like pornography and masturbation and fornication. Because pornography is looking lustfully on another person. Masturbation is fantasy, thinking lustfully about another person. And fornication is acting lustfully with another person. So in either one of those cases, adultery is already committed in your heart. It's too late. The sin is already committed. Even if you've never done it, if it was just pornography or just masturbation, we call it just. You might say, well, I got away with it because I didn't actually, you know, like do it. I kind of thought about it and and kind of did it with myself. But essentially, adultery has already been committed. And Jesus said, that is not a good thing. What about homosexuality? What about polygamy? What about a small house? I already kind of touched on those things. But in the beginning, God made them male and female. Let's see male and male there. And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. So uh, that scripture speaks against all of those three things. Because we can't be one flesh with multiple people. We can't be one flesh with somebody of the same gender. They might think that they're a different gender, or you might think you're a different gender. But biologically, you're different. And so God didn't make us that way. Now there's other scriptures God talks about, uh, Jesus talks about how some people are born eunuchs from their mother's womb. Some are, are, are made eunuchs by the hand of men. And some become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And I think that speaks about people who, well, maybe in the context, the eunuch is not necessarily somebody who's physically different, but emotionally different. And if you're an emotional eunuch, uh, you, know, you may not want to get married. Or you may realize that you can't get married because your desire is for another person of the same gender. Guess what? Stay single. Stay unmarried because it's easier. And the same way it goes with, with polygamy. I believe God did not design polygamy. Everybody who had, in the Bible, everybody who had more than one wife had more than one mother-in-law and more than one bucket full of trouble. I don't believe that the trouble you get from your mother-in-law increases uh, additionally. I believe it increases geometrically. So it goes on a curve. One, one, one mother-in-law, two mothers-in-law. Three mothers-in-law, boatload of trouble. None of them had happy marriages that were completely happy. They always had bickering, fighting going on between the wives, between the wives and their, their, their handmaidens. You name it. Go and look it up. No one had it good. Abraham and Sarah, one. When he tried to uh, make a baby with his, his, his wife's handmaiden, what did they get? A whole nation. Who's reaping the problems now? Israel. That whole tribe of Ishmael are Islamic. And there's been a contest, a contest between those two children ever since then. But this is what Jesus said. And I I kind of was debating whether to throw this scripture in or not. I'm running out of time, but I'm going to go anyway. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. What we say, what we talk about is what defiles us. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. First on the list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, also in that list. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from inside and defile a person. So our thought life determines 
what we say and what comes out of our mouth, what we say, what we talk about, betrays our heart, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, these things defile us. And when, we, when our thought life starts saying, I really fancy that girl, or I really fancy that guy, I'm prepared to do anything to get him or her, you know that the first on the list is sexual immorality. That could be pornography, could be masturbation. Not good. So what's the way forward? And this is my last couple of slides. Three slides, to be precise. As he was speaking, John 8, 1 to 11, the Pharisees of religious law, and sorry, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. So she'd been caught in bed with someone, and they brought her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. Okay, like I said earlier, what do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right. But let one of you who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. We don't know what Jesus wrote in the dust. It could have been a list of sins. It could have been a list of names of women that those men had slept with. Who knows? It could have been pictures. It could have been squiggles. Olden times graffiti. We don't know what it was. But what spoke to those people was, if one of you can prove that you've never sinned, be my guest. Every one of us, like I said in the beginning, has a past. We all have baggage. We all do not have the right to throw a stone. And this is what Jesus says to you. If you're sitting here today and if you feel like, wow, you're really blurt, I've messed up, I, I, I know I did it, I know I shouldn't have done it, this thing now sits over here haunting me uh, and I just feel condemned, I feel like I'm not worthy. What Jesus said is the very last line. He doesn't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Whether you're married and you've had an affair, whether you've messed around, whether you're single, whatever it is, go and sin no more. Really? The scriptures here, I, I didn't include it, but I should say it is that we are commanded to keep the marriage bed undefiled. The scripture doesn't say go and make the marriage bed undefiled. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. If you're a virgin when you get married, if you marry a virgin, it's easy to keep the marriage bed undefiled because you don't then go out looking for other people. If you follow the commandments of God, you're not going to find somebody else. You're not going to go look for somebody else. Even in your mind and in your heart, you keep your eyes single for your spouse. If it's happened, it's happened. God forgives us. Jesus forgives us. And he says, go and sin no more. So Father, I pray for every single person here today 
I know that each one of us has fallen in this area. Each one of us has not been pure the way you intended for us to be pure. We know that there's been extenuating circumstances for many of us, but today we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for the oil and the wine of the Holy Spirit to wash through our very beings and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we confess our sins to you, Lord, we ask that you would indeed forgive us and cleanse us. And we ask that you would be with us today and guide us through that process. And if you ask us to, to remember individual specific examples, we ask that you would do that in the sanctity of our own hearts and that we would come to a place of repentance and forgiveness with you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you, if you don't know what it means to be born again, if you've never received Jesus into your heart, these sins, these sexual sins don't affect you because you're already in a place of sin and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus says that there's a place which you can come and be cleansed from all of that, from all of your past and all your baggage. It's called the place of the cross. And last Sunday we celebrated Easter where Jesus took the weight of all of the sin, all of our sin, on his shoulders, that we might be forgiven. It's no mistake that we have a cross on our front wall. It's a place to remind us that there's a cross that we can lay down our lives and lay down our sin, and that Jesus can cleanse us. And if you're here today and you know that you need to just give up your life, your past, the, the burdens that you've been carrying, and you need to come right with God, I'm going to invite you to come down to the front We'd love to pray with you. Taps is here. Brian's here. I'm here. There's some other leaders around. We'd love to pray with you. But Father, today I commit us all to, to you. I ask that you deal with us your way, that you'd help us, that you'd be with us, and that you'd bind us together as one in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. been listening to a podcast from Kingdom People Church in Harare. For more details, please go to www.kingdompeoplechurch.org.